Welcome to the Crafting Character Podcast. I'm Steve Carter, and in association with my good friends at CDF Capital, I'm excited to do this episode of Craft and Character. Uh, today uh, is going to be a little bit different. I typically have a senior pastor or teaching pastor, someone that I just really, really respect their gift and craft of communication and and just know that their character is leading the way. Um, but every once in a while, I come across a book or I come across a person that just literally fascinates me. And I recently, probably five, six months ago, came across a book, When Narcissism Comes to Church by Chuck DeGroote. And I'll just, I'll just name it here. We actually did this interview earlier this summer, um, but we did it outside. And for anybody who does a podcast, just, just take it. When you do a podcast outside with Chuck DeGroote in a college town and everybody knows Chuck DeGroote, um, people just stop and just want to talk to this guy. And after 40 minutes of just this podcast, you're going to know why. Chuck DeGroote is a professor at Western Theological Seminary at Holland, in Holland, Michigan, um, where he kind of oversees the pastoral care and Christian spirituality. Um, he's an amazing, amazing man. Uh, he's becoming a friend, someone I deeply respect. Hey, Chuck, thank you, thank you, thank you for being on the Craft and Character podcast. Yeah, man, thank you. That was a fun introduction. <laughs> well, let's, let's just dive in. I mean, I, I remember seeing this book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, and I was like, oh, man, like, this, this guy's probably got a story. Um, I think it's a fascinating title. Can you, can you just kind of share, hey, where did that title come from? And obviously, you're doing pastoral care work and, and kind of training up students in this regard. But why this title? Why narcissism? Um, yeah, give us some insights. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the shorter story is that uh, a number of years ago now, I did some consulting for a larger church. And, and we did a lot of work together, me and a team there did a lot of diagnostic work, but they were looking for resources. And I gave them some resources along the way, but there wasn't like one resource that encapsulated the conversation. And so that was kind of the more immediate need for the book. The, the longer one goes back to my days in seminary and my own, my own narcissistic tendency, the awakening to them in seminary, uh, eventually finding my way in seminary to like a second degree program in mental health counseling, where I, I not only did my own work, but I started getting exposed in my, my counseling work to men in particular who are narcissistic. And then that led to, I, I started doing assessment work for my denomination, particularly around church planning. I was a pastor for 15 years, so I was doing a lot of work in the world of church planning and seeing a lot of it there. And uh, just basically sort of 20 years or so in the church, seeing narcissism it felt like it was time to write something on it. Give us a quick definition of your understanding of what narcissism is. I feel like it's kind of a buzzword right now. People talk about it, but I often wonder how, how well people really understand from a clinical perspective what narcissism truly is. Yeah, well, when we talk about narcissism, um, typically when you think about the caricature of narcissism, you go back to like a classic, the classic language that you get from the psychological textbooks, right? 
stuff like grandiosity, um, egocentricity, a sense of entitlement, um, a need to be uh, seen uh, on stage all the time, a lack of empathy. Those are those are some of like the basic characteristics of narcissism. And they certainly like show up in, in a lot of narcissistic pastors. I've really tried to nuance that because you have a kind of like grandiose narcissism, which you see in more of your, you know, your large church pastors that maybe like the stage, but there's also a more, uh, what we call more vulnerable narcissism. That's, I don't like the word vulnerable, but that's, that's how people talk about it. And it's more of a smug superiority. It might be the pastor in the church of 60 or 40 or 20 for that matter. But, but that, that pastor's like, we are the true church. We are the only ones. We're this small because we're so faithful, right? And <laughs> yes. so there's kind of a grandiose narcissism, but there's also kind of a, uh, a more kind of vulnerable narcissism that we see. That's so good. That's super helpful because I think oftentimes we just think of it from a mega church pastor. But I, I love the fact that you, you can see it in a church of 40 or 60. And I think what, what I really was so fascinated when I read your book, which I absolutely love, is, man, it just, it it awakened me to go, man, I wonder how many people um, have this sense of being vulnerable to these tendencies. And you, you in the book unpack the narcissistic spectrum. You you talk about how, hey, there's actually good qualities. Like when you have a a, a daughter who goes, hey, dad, watch me. I want to do a flip. Check me out when doing a flip into the pool. But if she's doing that when she's 32, we might have a problem, you know, but can you unpack that spectrum? Cause I think that's really, really helpful in this conversation. Yeah, it is helpful. And, and you're, first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, I think we, uh, developmentally a little bit of narcissism, uh, is, is significant. Like in our children, we want them to feel at some level, like they're the center of our world. Right. And, and of course, over time, we want them to recognize their own limitations, recognize that they aren't the center of the world. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I love the example that you just gave. And I, you know, I remember doing that with my daughter and she did cartwheels, you know, like, Hey, yeah, that's the most amazing cartwheel I've ever seen. Yeah. The problem is when I, I was told the story of this guy who was like the, the high school quarterback, but then he's the pastor and he's 50 years old and his body is out of shape and he comes into my office and he's depressed and he's like, I just want to be that guy again, you know, and th- that's the problem. The spectrum that you're talking about is really important because when we talk about narcissism in general, we might not be talking about narcissistic personality disorder. Like I mentioned that in seminary, I started reckoning with my own narcissism, but I wasn't diagnosably narcissistic personality disorder. And so you have narcissistic style, narcissistic type, and then narcissistic personality disorder. And it's something like, uh, it's, it's like the difference between having the sniffles a really bad cough and a full-blown flu. Um, and, and, and I often say like the more severe, the bigger, the debris field of pain around you, like the more people are going to be impacted. Yes. I, I, and I love the, in that spectrum, you know, it's, it's actually, you know, page 37. I have it like earmarked on in uh, my copy of my book, but you have this kind of continuum where you talk about that narcissistic style, but underneath it, you, you talk about healthy narcissism and then it's like midway through that second narcissistic type, it be, it can, it can become to- toxic narcissism. 
and narcissistic uh, pathology. I I feel like for for many of us, and again, just for me, it was helpful to go, hey, there there is healthy narcissism. There's that healthy development of the personal ego, true self. But man, how you become aware to recognize this is this is borderline toxic, or this is this is toxic. This is something that is, um, like you said, if you don't get it in check, could have profound levels of collateral damage um, for the people that you have been entrusted to lead and to serve. And and I think it's it's different when it's a a CEO of a company, you know, it's it's when it when it's a pastor, and maybe let's just stop like talk about that, that collateral damage that you've found. Um, what, what ends up happening? Cause I'm sure a lot of people have come sat with Chuck DeGroote and said, Hey, I'm a product of the trauma of a narcissist, um, yeah. in my church and yeah. help me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I've said about the book over and over again is if the only thing it does for people is reminds them they're, that they're not crazy, then I'm really satisfied. Because there is this crazy making dynamic to narcissistic leadership. And I, I talk about emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, gaslighting, um, these kinds of dynamics where, you know, th- and this is where it's particularly troubling. When you have a narcissistic pastor, it's different than a narcissistic lawyer or CEO because the pastor maybe has seminary education, might be ordained might be a, like a master of divinity. Um, yeah. although that's, that's just like an interesting title for a degree. Um, yeah, all these things, right. That make you think, Oh, he, he or she, like they've got it all together. Uh, I can't question her. She's, I mean, she's, she's got the degree. He's got the platform. He's written 10 books. There's no way I, I must be the one who's wrong. And so to get to the heart of your question, I think one of the more common characteristics of people who've been impacted is this sense of, uh, of like confusion. Uh, and that's what happens with trauma often is there's a sense of like, I can't be me. I must be the problem. I must be responsible. And often a, a really narcissistic leader, a narcissistic, narcissistic personality disorder leader is the kind of leader who will uh, intentionally inflict these kinds of crazy making dynamics onto you. It was, that's your fault. Uh, you just talk too much during meetings. You've never, you've never really followed my leadership. You never wanted to uh, toe the line or whatever it might be. That I think that's so, so helpful because I mean, again, for, for people who maybe have ever experienced that, you know, they do walk away from, you know, meetings, they walk away from a time serving at a church that they love and they go, was I crazy? Was, what's wrong with me? And that 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 is that emotional or that spiritual abuse, and oftentimes it 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 comes because you go, this person, you know, is doing eighty percent good in the world. People are coming to you. You almost go through this checklist of all of the good, and you go, what good have I done in comparison to that? I, I it must be me. I don't have those credentials. Um, and and I think one of the 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 interesting pieces is. How, because I don't know if this has just been, uh, it feels like every movie that's dropping on Hulu or Netflix right now, you know, bombshell or, you know, a story about um, the Weinsteins, you know, again, these are 
uh, outside the church. But, you know, you find that around powerful people, there are also people who almost are choosing to like ride with that person and say, I'm going to clean up the mess. I think you also find that in the church, you know, and it's, I've often wondered when you're watching these movies, why would people do that? Any, any thoughts? Cause I, it's, it's gotta happen in the local church too. Like why would people be okay with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wish I should have thought of this beforehand, but I, I often think of, I've got to research this sometime, you know, like you've got the whale, you've got these movies like national geographic movies with like the whale swimming through the water. And then you've got like these, it, it, he's the host animal. And then there are like these feeder fish that tag along, you know, what are they called? I forget. Oh, I don't know. That's a great question. That's what I'm talking about. Like, and, and they just kind of tag along and they, they sort of feed off the whatever on the, the whale, right? It's sim- a similar dynamic where there's this fascinating guy named Gerald Post. He's a CIA profiler. Okay. And Gerald Post talks about former CIA profiler. And now he's been writing on this kind of stuff on narcissistic dynamics for 30 years. But he talks about the mirror-hungry narcissist. That's the narcissist who looks to his congregation as like the mirror feedback to me what I need to see, what I need to know about myself and the ideal hungry follower. And the ideal hungry follower is like, I feel really bad about myself. I need to know that there's a hero in the world. Um, I need my, my white savior up on stage. Um, I need an embodiment sort of, sort of like the, you know, the people of God, when Moses went up the mountain, were like, oh, we need something here. You know, we need something to, that, to touch, like to put our hands on. So they form the golden calf. Like we, re- we need something. We need a king of our own making. We need someone, someone that we can worship and idealize. And so the ideal hungry follower uh, really gets his or her needs met by being in proximity to the narcissist, right? And oftentimes they are people who maybe lack some self-esteem, confidence. Maybe they're shame-based, insecure. They won't readily admit that, but they've locked, they're in lockstep with the narcissist and they sort of they're loyal and they, they attach themselves for the sake of their own uh, well-being. They t- attach themselves to the, the host whale of the narcissist. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a bizarre symbiotic relationship. You know what I mean? And, and like, and you think about that, whether shame or insecurity, I think, you know, another part that I really love of the book and please, uh, I don't do this very often, but um, I think Chuck DeGroote, is, is one of the few people that's winning on Twitter. You need to follow him. And this book, especially if you are a pastor, a teacher, you're leading a student ministry, you're someone who loves the local church, it's such an important read. But um, one of the chapters I really loved was when you talk about the nine types from the Enneagram and you kind of go through each type and what to kind of be aware of and for me as a three, as an achiever, I, I look at that, you know, ideal hungry kind of um, feeder, you know, the key word for me would be around opportunity, um, security, stuff that like, man, this person could provide me something that I could minimize experiences that I was having because the opportunity was great. But going through those nine types, I thought was so, so insightful. Um, Maybe, maybe talk about a few types. You don't have to go through all of them, but just like what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think you, you're kind of, you're hitting on the core of, of, of a threes inclination, right? And with each type, 
there is a kind of inclination to take control of your world, right? The, yeah. the great thing about the Enneagram is it's not a personality test. It's more like a pathology test. I like it gets at how we try to control um, and manipulate our worlds. And so if you're, you're two, you're like, well, I'm the helper. That's great. You know, I'm the, but uh, my friend Michael calls the two the benevolent narcissist. In other words, this is the person who helps to meet his own needs. Um, the type seven, who, by the way, Claudio Naranjo, who's like the godfather of, of the Enneagram, yeah. the type seven is called the archetypal narcissist by Claudio Naranjo. Uh, he, he would have said not the three, not the eight, but the seven is the archetypal narcissist because the seven doesn't live in reality. It doesn't live in the present moment. The seven is always looking to some future, like the seven is like Saturday night before, before uh, Sunday morning. I'm sure Rob Bell has done this at one point, like or maybe even <laughs> Sunday morning, like this is what we're doing. We're going in this different direction. Not to say we're Rob Bell's a narcissist, but um, just to say these, my seven friends that I know out there, my buddy Matt in San Diego is like, I got a great idea. This is what we're going to do. You know, it's yep, like, yep. they're off to the races, the power of the eight. Uh, the need to be special or dramatic for the four, you know, um, the perfectionism of the one, the the sense that they they know everything of the five, you know, um, you, we could literally go through each one of the Enneagram types and kind of hit on how they can become narcissistic when that that kind of primal need to control uh, becomes out of spins out of control yeah. and becomes a whole way of relating in the world. Yeah, and, and I think this is the this has been the hardest part for me in clearly identifying my own, you know, healthy narcissism, but also the parts that are verging into not so healthy. Is let's take the seven, and you know, you, you, you know, I I worked closely with Rob. Uh, he's he's just a dear brother, and and you're right. He has ideas after ideas after ideas. Um, and they and when he does them, they're actually right. You know what I mean? Like in the sense, like he'll turn a corner and you're like, that was, that was actually masterful. Um, that was beautiful. Or, um, sometimes an eights intuition, you know, someone who could look at something and go, nope, that's not gonna, that's, that's not the moment in the service. And you're like, and, and, and so there's these, these moments where you're like, gosh, this is, um, something that's so core to them, but is there maybe a better way in which this this gets distributed? Like, could this could this idea be great in two weeks? Could this idea or this moment could this been fleshed out and talked about where your intuition could have been seen in the like the 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 walkthrough rather than the after the first Christmas service? You, you know what I mean? Like, how, how do we become aware of that and actually have healthy dialogue about that? Yeah. 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 You see, because we joke about these different types and these people and even your friend Rob, you know, but the question is, is do you have the awareness to be able to say, oh, how did that impact you when I did that, when I made uh, that decision, you know? And I, I think people who are humble and curious are able to step back and, and, and look at their impact, you know, maybe, maybe even assess the debris field. Like, Hey, I just pulled an audible on Sunday morning and said, uh, you know, we're, we're going in this direction. Uh, let's cut out the music. I'm going to do this, whatever it is, you know? And <clears throat> so now I want to check in, what was that like for all of you? What, what is it like when I do that? 
um, or for the benevolent narcissist, the two. You know, I, I think that when I, you know, when I organized that, that volunteer day last week, in the end, I just wanted everyone to say, you know, look at Rita. She did an amazing job. I just want to, I want to talk about that because I'm a little bit worried that I serve to get served, to get my needs met. That's, that's where I know it's when I experience from people that kind of humility, that curiosity, curiosity about themselves, about what's going on in their own heart that I know I'm probably not dealing with someone with narcissistic personality disorder. With NPD, you're not curious at all about those kinds of things. Wow. Yeah. You know, when we, we met, you know, this summer, you kind of shared an experience and I'm not asking you to, to remember it, but I, I was so drawn cause I was kind of pushing you a little bit like, okay, like how do people ever come to you? Do you ever go to people? Like, I mean, you kind of just alluded to it and you talked about how, you know, you, you actually asked this question once to someone, you know, Hey, how did this experience make you feel? And the person was like, not great. And, and, you know, and I was like, oh my goodness, like you actually do this. You know, I mean, I, again, I, I think it's so easy to talk about things, but literally putting that curiosity into practice. Um, one, how do you do that? And then two, uh, I think sometimes people go, good, I'm, I'm doing it, but doesn't mean you're gonna get the right answer or the answer you want, um, you're gonna get the truth. And how do you handle when the truth actually stings? Yeah, well, I think, I think this is a hard, it's a hard question to ask. And the question is, how do you experience me? Or how do I impact you? And, and uh, I can understand why people don't ask it because it's really hard to hear. I can understand why narcissists are so well defended because at some point they were vulnerable when they were young, you know, they were taken advantage of. And so this is not something that we, you know, we wake up one morning, we decide to start practicing this, but it's helpful to lean into and see how, how it feels. Um, now I've been in various spaces where I've had power. I'm in a space right now where I have power. Um, I've been able to hire and fire, uh, you know, in, in my current space, I'm a, you know, I'm a seminary prop. And so I grade, uh, you know, I've got power over students like, He's, he holds the keys to me becoming an ordained minister. So I have to recognize my power in a space and we all do. Right. And so maybe the example I shared, one of the examples I'd commonly share is, is of a student who came to me maybe about a year ago, a year and a half, two years ago and said, Hey, you're always talking about being present. You're always talking about showing up, being connected. And yet I experience you when you're, you leave your office and you walk and you get coffee in your office. It's like, you're in a rush and I might call out to you, but you don't hear me. It just seems like you're not at all concerned about anything going around uh, on around you. You're just concerned to get back to whatever you were doing. And so, you know, he said this and I was like, well, tell me more. (laughs) I didn't want to hear more, but what's that like for you when, when you call out my name and I don't respond to you. And he's like, it makes me feel small and it makes me feel like I can't trust you. And these things that you say about being present about, you know, showing up, all this stuff. And, and, you know, I take another deep breath and I'm like, okay, thank you. Um, so let's, let's, you know, let's uh, drill down some more on that. You know, the temptation is to want to say, well, well, listen, I'm your prop. I've got things to do. I'm really busy. You know, I just wrote a book after all, you should kind of worship me because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing some really important things or why are you in my office right now? Or why, why are you giving you know, the temptation is, or to rationalize, you know, well, I've got a lot, whatever it is, um, 
versus simply just being present to the disappointment that he experienced. It's like and the longing to be known that hasn't been reciprocated when he's called out to me. You know, um, I haven't been willing to stop seeing my impact on another human being. It's as simple as that. Like we're really talking about something that um, like the cure to this doesn't mean 10 years of therapy. It means us really literally becoming more present to one another in our daily lives. I so I just absolutely loved that story when you when you told it to me and I'm so grateful you you, you told it again um, because I, I I think about how often even for me personally I can just get defensive but that next question tell me more and that you know the next question and just staying present but I think you know you, you can't just know the tools it's it's like I think the character formation and the and the prep work that you have been doing for weeks, months, years, decades, prepares you for that conversation. And I think that's where, that's when our character actually leads the way. I think there's a lot of us who, you know, we, we know, like, tell me more. We know maybe a, a question, but to stay in it and to stay present, like you said. Amy, how did you learn that? Or, or what practices, especially for, for pastors, would you go, hey, I think this has been really, really important um, for me along the way, it might be helpful for you. Yeah. Well, so I, I think you probably agree with this is you just said it, a version of it. It's, it's a lifetime thing. Right. And, yeah. um, I, I wish I just turned 50 this year and I am dealing with a lot of, uh, regret that I'm not further along. Now I I'm, I'm pretty lucky in the sense that I was caught at 27 years old. Like I literally had, um, a seminary prof look at me and said, and say to me, you're going to be really dangerous if you don't do your work right now. And, um, and in fact, he said, you're probably already dangerous to people in your life, like your wife. I mean, like who says stuff like that? But he saw something in me and decided to name it. And, and I think that started me on a journey. And so, so then I, I've been really fortunate to have uh, people in my life, men and women in my life. It was a year later that a woman in my life, um, a supervisor of mine, uh, was watching me do a clinical counseling session. And essentially when we were done, I thought I had just killed it. I thought it was amazing. And she says to me, if you call flirting with a woman for an hour um, amazing, then I guess it was amazing, Chuck. It was a really amazing job of flirting with her for an hour. And she deconstructed my my relationship with my mom. <laughs> she deconstructed my own way of relating out of anxiety. Now, those things happened before I was... 30 years old. And I'm really fortunate to have had experiences like that where I was essentially caught, you know, um, which has led me to be a little bit more courageous to lean in and say, I have blind spots. Even now, you know, at 50, my 25 year old student can come in and say, I just don't experience you as present. You talk about it in a lecture, but I don't experience it in living color. Yeah. That's, uh, it, it takes time. It takes really good people in our lives, right? I know a little bit of your journey and the, the kind of, you know, the kinds of hard questions you've asked, Steve. It takes surrounding ourselves with people. It takes making really hard decisions to maybe step out of. I stepped out of a really great and I think fairly influential position in ministry to actually uh, take a season of, of, um, of humility, of, of downward mobility, as Henry Nowen likes to say. Yeah, yeah. Just because I felt like, I need, I need to step away from whatever platform I was on at the time and whatever money I was making in order to have a season of, 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 of the dark night of the soul, of discernment, of rest. Of, and you know how that goes. It takes, 
courageous decisions along the way, I think, you know? I mean, it, it's it's fascinating because you mentioned, um, and by the way, just, I mean, so much of what you shared, I just, it speaks to my heart. And, um, but, you know, at age 50, you turning 50, happy birthday. And you mentioned not being uh, farther along. And I, and, I, and I often think this is so fascinating because, you know, at age 27, so 23 years ago, um, you, you, you changed course now, not really, but, but really in, in, in so many ways. And if you wouldn't have changed course, there's probably a good chance at 50, you're way farther along, but potentially doing way more damage. You know what I mean? And so it's this really, it's this really crazy piece is at 50, the work that you have done in the last 23 years and obviously before, but these last 23 years, did you, you are impacting so many people, even just again on Twitter. I mean, that's how I came across you. And I was like, I need to know this guy. And then I kept like reaching out to people because I was, I'm like, hey, is Chuck DeGroot the real deal? And everybody I kept talking to was like, I, I got a Chuck DeGroot story. I got a Chuck DeGroot story. I mean, it was, I mean, I probably reached out to a dozen people who had a Chuck DeGroot story of how you were present in their life and just, again, um, had helped navigate uh, them through their own personal dark night of the soul or wrestling with their own kind of potential uh, train wrecks that were coming or potential narcissism. And I just go, gosh, like, uh, I'm grateful for someone like you who's done that kind of work. Um, it inspires me um, more than you know. Um, I I want to go back to just this two chapters um, in this book. And we kind of alluded to it, but you, you talked about the characteristics of a narcissist. And I think that was fantastic. And I thought maybe we could just spend a few minutes just walking through those. And then what I love is you don't just like name them. You get to like chapter nine in the book and you go, hey, there's healing that can be found. And so just maybe some some hints and and and, and yeah. kind of pieces on that. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we probably don't have time to go through all of them, but I yeah. named 10 characteristics, 10 like primary characteristics of narcissistic leadership in the church. And um, I'll just kind of walk through them real quick, quickly. All decision making centers on them. Number two, impatience uh, with others. Number three, delegating without giving proper authority or too many limits. Number four, feelings of entitlement. Number five, feeling threatened or intimidated by other talented staff. Number six, needing to be the best and brightest in the room. Number seven, inconsistency and impulsivity. Number eight, praising and withdrawing. Uh, number nine, intimidation of others. And number 10, vulnerability. Not vulnerability, but F-A-U-X, vulnerability. And you'll notice, you'll notice the characteristics that I mentioned earlier. Some of those characteristics of grandiosity, of entitlement, that sense of all decision-making centers on them. Like, like uh, even when they, just to combine two, even when they delegate authority, it's sort of like they, they find their way back into the decision-making process. And it feels like, did you really put me in charge of that? You know, or this sense of praising and withdrawing. I can't, I can't say how many people, I was just doing a consult for a large church. And like the number three person was like, I thought I had trust, but when I gained when I gained more um, authority, when I gained more um, identity in the church, 
Um, he'd come into my office and at one moment he'd say, I just can't believe how amazing you are. You're the best. And then the next moment he'd turn around and say, I'm just not sure that we can keep you on. You're failing at this, 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 and this. Um, the needing to be the best and brightest in the room. I, I worked with another church where, where every time the pastor had uh, a staff that would grow into their own sense of self-identity, really talented staff around him, he'd find some way to dismiss them, marginalize them, minimize them. Vulnerability, man, this is a big one. This has been like the biggest one for me in the last 15 years or so. Because when I started out in ministry, pastors weren't really sharing as much about their lives. Um, But we've had this sort of psychological revolution within the church where, you know, we use gospel language to talk about, like, I'm just such a great big sinner. Man, I am the chief of sinners. You wouldn't even know how big and bad of a sinner I am. And yet, when you sit down and talk to that pastor, that's the vulnerability, F-A-U-X. When you sit down and ask for specifics, like when's the last time you looked at pornography or are you having an affair right now or how much do you drink at night or whatever it might be, you don't, you get an elusive answer. They're not really willing to be vulnerable with a V. So vulnerability is a kind of a false, manipulative vulnerability. And I've seen that as one of the major problems among pastors today. And, and what do you like? Cause I think that, that, that faux vulnerability, I, I, I just, I absolutely, when I read that, I was like, Oh my goodness. Cause Again, you you can there are moments when you can see this on the stage when someone's teaching where you're like, oh man, that that tear, like there that quiver of the lip or that that moment, like and sometimes I have to check my own heart. I'm like, it, I'm asking, is that a is that something that's real or is that just a a a a trick or like a a, a a part of the craft that someone can just get you to an emotional place. And then, you know, and I, I, but I think when you start pressing on those real questions, so many people can have that faux vulnerability, but they don't have the people in their life that they've surrounded themselves with who are asking them the hard questions about pornography, about, Hey, how, how much are you drinking at night? Uh, about money, about power, about sex, like, about just some of the real issues, um, and I and I think you even get to social media. We, we you know we chopped this up a, a you know before, but you, you know there's someone uh, mentioned this phrase like it's almost like this the curated like yeah. vo- like it's it like this picture of like someone just waking up in the middle of the uh, of the or the first thing in the morning and they're totally perfect, but it's like this curated messiness. And, and it's this amazing post about their life. And, and you sit there and you're like, that, that's not actually real. And, and we've, we've like curated these vulnerable moments, but that's like you said, use that word manipulative. It can be manipulative. And I just, um, I, I, I keep wondering what, what do you think's underneath it? What's the thing beneath the thing? Is it insecurity for all those 10? Is it shame? Like what, what, what is it? I have a, a chapter I call Shame and Rage in the Narcissistic Pastor. And, um, and I, I really, this is, the, this is a really hard chapter for people, by the way, who are victims of narcissists, because it's like, I don't want to humanize him or her, um, mostly hymns in the church, but I don't want to humanize him. It's really painful. And I mean, I would, I think if you're on that kind of journey, skip that chapter. But I mean, I, I do think that there, when I, when I've done this work, I've had this 
privilege of being in particular kinds of moments with pastors, leaders, not just like CEOs, uh, people outside of the church as well, where you get, you get to this, um, like this really, this small hole in the armor, right? And they begin to open up to you and the tears start to come. And you will discover at that moment that there is a story of profound pain and mostly, most of the time abuse, some kind of long-term abuse, not just a one-time affair or something like that, but something that prompted them at some point unconsciously to begin to assemble the armor, kind of like the Mandalorian. Uh, Watch that. I mean, like, I'm just going to put on one piece at a time. And I'm telling you, they don't do this intentionally. It's sort of like they learn to put on the armor. They learn to defend themselves. Oh, wow, I've got some charisma. I can use that. I've got a brain. I can use my academics. I'm really good at sports. Whatever it is, they craft the, they curate the the new persona, right? By the time they're in their mid-20s, that's who they are. By the time they're in their mid-30s, 40s, it's solidified. That's all they know. And so when they come and talk to someone like me, it's a really vulnerable experience. If they begin to open the door just a little bit, I'll tell you, like 90% of the time, Steve, um, the door will be slammed in my face. Like the next time around, it's like we we are not going back there because it's just too scary. Wow. 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 That I mean, I think that's so, so helpful. I um I I met with this trauma specialist. Um and I uh I was talking about some, you know, my own past experience and I'll never forget, you know, this, this just amazing, amazing specialist. And, and, and this person, you know, she said, Hey Steve, I just want you to know, um, I think, think that, um, you were a victim, um, and your innocence, um, there was, there's some parts that goodness that just was like taken advantage of, but I, I have a bigger question. Um, why are you drawn to narcissists? Yes. Yeah. I, Chuck, I, I, I didn't want to pay this person. I didn't, I wanted to hang up. I, I had, I, I couldn't believe that question and I have not been able to shake it, you know? And, and then I come across your book and I start to see and read and I'm like, Oh my goodness, this has been so helpful, especially talking about the types of the Enneagram and the three and seeing, oh, parts of my childhood and and all, and you just start to see um, there's parts where this has been something that I'm really familiar with. It's it's like a homeostasis that like I I understand. And but doesn't mean that I need to live in that place forever. And I think for some that have grown up in the church, for some that have been um, grown up in systems, family systems, like they can put themselves in that. Um, and that's where I think the breaking out or the healing from or the recognizing, that's so, so important for your own spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical well-being. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything you'd say to that, but... Yeah, I mean... I- you you put words to my story in that. Um, and I remember an early therapist told me, you're drawn to narcissists like a moth to a flame, you know, like um, wow. you, uh, and I found myself in situations where 
uh, because of my own shame issues, my own lack of confidence. It's like, I like to put myself in the proximity of powerful leaders. Um, I feel just a little bit better about myself. Uh, and it's taken a, a while to reckon with that. Right. And this is where I think it's really important. I try to talk about this, like talk about narcissistic systems and these symbiotic relationships that you're getting at. And I'd, I'd even go further than I, I went in the book. I think it's becoming more and more important that we talk about uh, some of the cultural dynamics as well, too. Uh, I, I mentioned that I did a consult recently with a, a large church, a large white evangelical church. And we can talk about narcissism kind of individualistically. We can talk about a senior leader, but we have to talk about the systems that enable and support yep. um, the leadership and elder boards that support the congregations that adore, you know. And the damage that is being done, the trauma, not only to, to uh, maybe like white pastors or parishioners, but particularly the people of color who are brought in and tokenized and, yep. and then spit out, you know, and there's a much larger conversation here because I, I do think narcissism goes hand in hand with some of the, the isms that we're talking a lot about today in the church, you know, but it, there's a, there's a collective dynamic and I, and I have to look at my own participation in narcissistic systems Yes. Uh, I have not been, I've not necessarily been that narcissistic leader, but I've certainly participated in ways that have been harmful. Man, I, I think, I don't know if that's your next book, but man, I, I think, I think that the, the cultures that are producing this, um, it, they're the ecosystems, they're the, you know, that, and, and, and I'm so grateful you said that because I think the, the minority, the people of color who have been, um, push to the side who, you know, and, and again, there's just so many layers to that conversation. Chuck, I, um, I feel like I could just talk to you on so many levels for hours and hours and hours, but I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Um, you've just been, a. uh, I, I feel like we're, we're really, really good friends, even though we we've only hung out once and, you know, connected a few times, but I, uh, I just, I appreciate you. I, I, and I, I kid you not, like I, I said this already, but I feel like you are winning Twitter. Um, and that's a really hard thing to do, I think. Um, but I just think there are moments that you will, you'll post a quote, um, from some desert father or mother or some idea or some article or just, just some, I don't know, recommendation of a book. And I just feel like I go and read it. And, um, you told me about Andy, uh, try softer. I read that book, you know, in, in like three days. And I was like, I started following her. I mean, just you, you, um, yeah, just where can people find you? What else are you working on? Um, yeah. I just want everyone to follow you. So, well, at Chuck DeGroat on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, I, I'm just now getting into Instagram. I, I was told uh, after I published this book, you know, they said, hey, you gotta, you gotta up your game on Instagram. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, yeah, and, and I appreciate you saying what you said. I mean, I really want to uh, offer resources that are helpful, you know, so I try to use that uh, as, as a way of stewarding um, whatever opportunity or influence I might have to share resources with other folks, you know, um, whether it's good quotes or really good resources by other people. And to be honest with you, a lot of what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to get behind other, other folks who are engaged in writing projects, um, not least my own doctor of ministry students. I've got, I've got a bunch of doctor of ministry students who are doing amazing work. And I think the kind of research that like the church needs for the next 20 years, I've got a woman who 
is doing work on narcissistic mothers right now in narrative form. I've got a church planner doing work on shame right now. Um, another evangelical pastor doing work on the Ignatian examine admission. I mean, it really good. So I'm trying to get behind others who are doing good work and I may or may not write something on emotional intelligence in the future as a way of, of, to get at your, your work to uh, crafting character, you know, um, in pastors. So we'll see, we'll see. But right now trying to get behind others. Well, Hey, thank you. And I just, uh, just commend you on so many levels and, Hey, everyone, please, um, if you're a pastor, again, a teacher, uh, you're leading a ministry, um, go get When Narcissism Comes to Church. It's it's available, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. I mean, it's everywhere. It will be a book that you won't be able to put down, and it will be a book that will make you think. And it actually gives you some real practical tips and tools for how you to diagnose it within yourself. And it's not shame-based. It is literally like the most helpful book, not just for you, but for the people that you're going to get a minister to and lead so that, again, our craft isn't the thing that's leading the way. It's our character. And we've got to do that long, hard journey to do our work. So I hope that you'll pick that book up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everyone for tuning into another episode of Craft and Character. I'm just so grateful. Feel free, subscribe, share, rate, always. If you've got questions, you can email me, steve at steveryancarter.com. But I hope you have a blessed day, grace and peace. We'll see you again next time.